0: Uh, welcome to East Lake. My name is Brent. I'm a teaching pastor here, and if this is your first time, you picked a great day to come check us out. We are on part four of a series we're calling Guard rails, Four of five. So next week will be the conclusion uh, of it. And the idea behind the series is simply this. Uh, we all know about guardrails. We know um, you probably drove past several of them on your way in this morning. They're designed, they're like a, a metal structure, usually metal, not always, but usually a metal structure that's designed to kind of keep you on the road, direct and protect us. Um, they're designed to keep us from falling into ditches. Or hitting walls, or they're, and they're always placed in a safety zone. Um, they're they're on drivable real estate, but they protect us from undrivable real estate. They keep us from ditches, um, and they're designed to provide limited damage. So if you hit one, you know you, it's not a good day for you. You may have to visit an auto body shop, but you may not have to visit a hospital. Um, and so we said those are like important things about guardrails. We understand the existence of them. We are on board for all of that. And we said what if in life um, guardrails were not just limited to the freeway system or the highway system? What if you had some guardrails in life? Would guardrails protect you from finding yourself in the ditch morally, professionally, uh, relationally, financially? In fact, looking back at some of your biggest regrets, if you had had guardrails in place, perhaps you would not have done that thing that led to that other thing that led to that other thing that led to that other thing that, that, other thing, that all of a sudden you look back and be like, ugh, that was stupid. I really regret doing this. And you, you, if you said, well, if I, I couldn't, you know, in that moment, it, it got too far. If I could have stopped myself over here, I would have never gotten there. And then I would have not been in a position to do those types of things. So uh, we said that it's important for us to kind of think through uh, through some of these things to get us uh, an uneasy early feeling about um, where, where we're at. Like our, our, we said that they're personal matters of conscience. We establish personal matters of conscience that for us kind of light up our conscience and say, watch out! This is da- this is om- you're entering into the danger zone. This is almost dangerous. Be very very careful because we said here's the the tradition of culture is painted lines, and what culture then does to us is baits us to the edge and then mocks us uh, when we go over the edge. It says, you know what, it, it, drink responsibly. And then when we go over the, reg, uh, over the edge and we get to DUI, it's like, how, you are an alcoholic. You, you can't even control yourself. There's so many problems here. And, and so we said, you know what, it's probably better for us looking at our past experiences, our current circumstances, and our future hopes and dreams. What are some appropriate guardrails for me? It's going to be personal. It's not going to be I'm preaching this to everybody. Everybody should live like this. But for me, I need this in place. And a lot of times, because they're in the safety zone, people are not gonna understand why you do this. People are not going to th- th- to understand that, that you feel guilty. Like you hit one of these guardrails and you say, ah, limited damage. I feel guilty about this. And you go and you apologize to them. I'm so sorry that I said this or did this or acted in this way. And they're like, it's okay. Hey, it's fine, it's fine. No, no big deal. They don't understand why is it such a big deal for you? I made it such a big deal because I desperately do not want to wake up and find myself in the ditch in this way. And so I've set these things up a little bit early on. So we've talked about specifically when it comes to uh, relationally uh, with friends, we've talked about with friends with benefits and sexual immorality and all all of those things. Uh, And then moving on to today, and we're all on board. Listen, I really do feel like this has been one of those series that um, even if you're like not a religious person and you're here because you know, she's cute and invited you to come, and you're like, I don't got anything else to do on Sunday mornings, or it's the coffee or the childcare or whatever, and you're here, and you're kicking the tires of Christianity. I'm not bought in. I'm not, don't give me a name tag. Don't give me anything yet. I'm still just checking things out. That's fine. The beauty of this series is I think everybody would look at this and be like, you know what? I need to do something like this for me. I may not be as strict about my guardrails as the ones that you're presenting, but I can see the value of making sure that I don't don't, don't, don't go too far towards that ditch because I don't want to end my life or end have my life end up in that way. So we are all on board for guardrails. But then it comes to money. And I said we we're going to talk about um, avoiding the ditch financially. And what I, here's what I uh, I don't mean um, I don't mean the ditch of bankruptcy or the ditch of, you know, I'm afraid to answer my phone because it's unmarked callers and they're calling me because I'm in collections and I'm afraid of that. Like, that, that's definitely, I don't want that for you, but that's not what this talk's about today. Um, if I want you to be able to avoid that, and I think the Dave Ramsey course that they're offering in the Community Marketplace is a great step in the right direction. But I think what I'm going to talk about is something a little bit differently and I know that money's not a hot topic and it's not a really cool and it's not a it's not a topic that grows your church in fact, here's what's been funny. we did Easter what four weeks ago and we have always a ton of people for Easter and then the week after Easter is always low because everybody's like, I went to church last week I'm good and then the two weeks after Easter um, is has been in the weeks that have followed the last couple of weeks we've had our biggest attendance ever in the history of our church and what's crazy is then we um, then I talk about Last week, sex and the church's opinion on sex. And then this week, the church's opinion on money. The two most unpopular topics that you could possibly... It's like thinning the herd is what this is called, right? This is called, if you, you know, who wants to be a part of this? And then ugh, people, you know, back away and leave. Jesus had this one opportunity one time where he's preaching and, and he does this whole thing about... Um, um, if you want to follow after me, yeah, you, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, which he's talking about communion, but he does it in such a way, it's like super extreme. And people are like, uh, this is sort of like a really hard teaching. And, and Jesus' disciples are like, pulling them over going, you shouldn't talk like that. You gotta come on. There's a big crowd now. You gotta say all the things that are nice. You gotta talk about kindness and other people and all this kind of other things that that people like. Let's keep them going. So if, if you were if you were me and you were in a position to like and you wanted to grow the church, right? This is not what you would talk about in this way. So that's again, this is the message that we're heading down. I and here's the thing. If you are not a Christian, okay, if if you're if you're here and you're like no, I'm not drinking the Kool-Aid. Don't buy me a name tag. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm simply a spectator. I'm in the audience of this. I'm, I'm observing, but not signing up for anything. I totally get it. I understand. We're glad that you're here. First of all, we designed this place to be a safe place for you. And here's the beautiful part about today's message. We're going to look at the words of Jesus. It was recorded by a guy named Matthew. And these words may be interesting to you, but they don't have any specific moral authority over your life until you sign up and say, you know, I want to be a follower of Jesus, at this point, all you're doing is, I think it's worthwhile for you to understand what Jesus said about money and finances and other things of life. I think it's worth your time to be able to know. And you can tuck this away as to adding to the list of one of the more reasons I don't want to be a Christian, one of the more reasons that I'm going to have to change if I want to do this. But listen, nothing. You get to observe and be like, sucks for you guys. That's what you get to do, okay? Now, if you are a Christ follower, if you consider yourself a Christian, then what we have today are, you may not like it, and I just want to keep in mind that you know that this is not Brent talking, so don't be angry at Brent, okay? Send your nasty, angry emails to Jesus at Jesus.com because these are his words, not Brent's words, okay? So that's that's what we're going through and we're talking about. So uh, again, I don't think the ditch when it comes to financial errors, the reason that you need guardrails when it comes to finances is not because I'm afraid that you're going to end up with poor Money mismanagement, and you're going to be in collections, and you're, you know you're not going to be able to provide for the basics of your family. Listen, that's that's another sermon, that's another talk, that's another time. That's that's important. I think what Jesus is saying to a crowd who gathered around him that one day, and, and listened to him talk, talked about how it doesn't matter what your bottom line is in whatever banking account, or they didn't have banking account, but in any stockpile of money, it has nothing to do with that. You can be really well off. You can have zero bills and zero debts. You can have money in the bank, and you could still be in danger of living and dangerously towards the guardrails when it comes to poor financial management. You could be golden financially, and according to Jesus, still be drifting towards financial ruin. So we're going to look at a passage today. Um, it comes from the book of Matthew, which is not really a book. It was a guy named Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples who followed him around. And, uh, and after Jesus died and ascended, and, and several years later, Matthew's probably getting along in age and realized, listen, I had a unique, uh, one-of-a-kind, uh, like such a, such a great perspective on who Jesus was, what he taught. I was with him from almost the very beginning, right? Matthew was one of the disciples that he goes and gets before he gathers a crowd and becomes famous and does all these teachings. So he got a chance to see these firsthand and later on, he goes, I don't want these memories and these stories and these dreams to die with me. I'm going to write a personal account of this, even though other accounts had already been written. Matthew was probably written after the book of Mark and, me, and probably after the book of Luke. Uh, and, and so he's, and, uh, so he's like, I, but I have a unique story. I have a unique angle for this and who I'm trying to write to. So he wrote these things down. In this collection of his writings, of his teachings, there's a section called uh, the Sermon on the Mount. It happens between chapters 5 and chapter 7. And uh, there's a couple, there's debate on whether this was an actual sermon of Jesus. We don't have a book written by Jesus. Jesus never wrote a book. Um, we, a lot of times have like glances or, or quick glimpses into some parables or some teachings, but we don't really have any sermons. He didn't show up at a temple and give like a long sermon. However, in this instance, Matthew writes it as if Jesus gathered a crowd on a mountaintop. So either he gathered a crowd that day and Matthew had enough handwriting speed to be able to write things down. Jesus, could you say that one more time? I'd miss that bullet point too. go on. Or probably more likely is Jesus would teach people this kind of stuff all the time. And so Matthew wrote it in as if, listen, I spent three years hearing this guy talk about things over and over and over and over again. I could tell you his bullet points from memory. So let's just assume that he gathered them together. If you were uh, on like sort of a political campaign during political season, right? These, these people, whoever is running for office stands up, they give these bullet point speeches, then they go and they do it in the next town, they do it in the next town, they do it in the next town. It wouldn't be too long before an aide would be able to be like, I can tell you what he's going to say. Let me tell you what he's going to say. That's what Matthew has here, I think, for us in Matthew chapter 6. Here's a a common teaching, which is important. Listen, here's why this is important. Because if it was a one-time occurrence, that's one thing. That's more like, oh, that's important historically. But if it was this type of thing is what Jesus consistently taught about whenever he had a crowd, that means that he's got a priority on this, that this is characteristic of his teaching. This was something that came up over and over and over again, meaning something that he was passionate about, something that I remember vividly, 10, 20, 30 years after his death, after, I, after he was long gone, I can still kind of piece this stuff together. That is what's powerful about this, and that's why I think what he has to say here is super important. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Nobody can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Talking about masters, and it's hard because you know, we, we're sitting here going, I don't have one master. I have no master's. I have a boss, kind of thinks he's a master sometimes, but I don't really have a master. But we can understand kind of the relationship between, you can't really be pulled. Uh, your time cannot be monopolized by two different people. You cannot be monopolized like you have to be here and you have to be here. I can't be in two places at once, so you got to get one. In a sense, you're going to love one and hate the other depending on which one you like even more. Then he goes on and he says, you cannot serve both God and and then he kind of like lets it hang a little bit. And then he goes, you cannot serve both God and the devil, right? In which we're like, some of you, you should, you should be laughing at this because that's not actually the words that he says here. We think that's the case. We think that sometimes our tension or, or the, yeah, we think that maybe Jesus is saying the tension that you're going to live with is throughout life, you're going to have to choose. Am I going to follow God or am I going to follow the devil, right? That's not the tension that you and I oftentimes live with. Here's the actual verse as how it goes. You cannot serve both God and Money and money. It's not the devil. He says, "In money, the chief competitor for your heart will not be." And and, and that might that might rock your world a little bit because you're like, "No, no, the chief." I I sit there and I think about, "Am I going to serve God or the devil today?" Listen, uh, this this is not. You're not going to like this sermon because it's going to go in completely different. And this might not be your church. You might need to go to a different church. I don't know. But here's what he's saying here: the biggest tension that you live with is not the devil. It's money. The chief competitor for your heart is your stuff. Not this guy who runs around with a pitchfork and red tights and and it's, I I don't know, I I can't even describe that. He's like, no, no, no. What you will live with consistently is the tension to be, am I going to be defined by the things that I have or am I going to be defined or am I going to trust in something very, very differently? For Jesus, the primary issue uh, regarding this whole thing isn't the actual money itself. It becomes the mastery of this. Listen, it wasn't money. He's not saying money is evil. What he's saying is it, it's going to operate like a master. It's going to claim ownership and possession over your life, whether you know it or not, and whether you would ever verbalize it in that way or not. But there's going to be a mastery going on, and you have got to realize, am I going to let my my money master me, or am I going to master my money? Now, this is attention, right? Because um, we, we know this and we feel like, okay, they had, we, we know the church's approach to this. Um, the church always does this. They always talk about money. And then how, what a coincidence. There's a bucket passed at the end and you have a chance to solve your money problems right then and right now, right? And for all that we know, Jesus never took an offering. Jesus not, did not do this at the end. He, he claimed to them and he said, listen, it's really important that you need to understand that this is gonna master your money. And then he kind of like leaves it that he, he, he doesn't do a, and by the way, Me and the disciples, we need a new camel. So here, here's a nice little soft bucket. If you could just fill this thing up and prove to me how much you love me. And the church has, listen, been notorious for that. And I... I we would apologize for that, but I don't, I don't know that I've ever been a part of one of them that does it, right? So um, I, I apologize for the, the essence of that in our culture and the perception of that, but I hope that you realize through your time here that that is definitely not what we want. According to Jesus, what he's so badly about is he's like, I want something for you. I want you to not be mastered by the cheap competitor for heart, which is your stuff. I don't. End it, I don't want it from you. I want something for you. So he looks at them, and, and, he, and he's talking again to a crowd that probably didn't have much, right? Christianity in its early days, some of the early followers of Christ were not wealthy people. He addressed the people who were excluded from all sorts of uh, popularity contests or, or power contests or civic rights or, or, or money. It was, it was very much the lower echelon of the socioeconomic status who were drawn towards Christianity. So even in the midst of that crowd, he says, you are in the danger, even though you don't have much of being mastered by your money. I want something different for you. Do you have money or does your money have you? And I think he goes on and throughout the passage and throughout his kind of teachings as a whole, from looking at it from a holistic standpoint, we fall into one of two traps. The ditches that we have on either side of the road or um, uh, the the thing that the guardrails protect us against in this way is the idea of consuming. You can fall into the, the ditch of consuming which is essentially consuming is I need to buy. I need to upgrade. I need to upgrade, upgrade, upgrade. What I have defines me. What I have defines me. If I can get that, then I'll be fine, right? This idea of consumption on the other side is hoarding. Hoarding is the same thing as consumption. It's just a different timeline. It's all about me still. It just means um, I live with the, the sense of what if I don't have enough? What if I don't have enough? It's about future me. Consumption is about current me. How can I spend more now? Hoarding is about future me. What, what can I do then? Now, here's something you need to know about consumers and hoarders. They end up marrying one another. This is how it works. In every relation, and we don't call them consumers and hoarders because that sounds terrible. We call them, well, she's a spender and I'm a saver. That's what we call it. Spenders and savers. That's a more politically correct. You call your wife a hoarder once in a while, and you, when you wake up, she's not. You're going to realize I can't do that anymore. That doesn't. That's not. That's not great for me, right? But every relationship has, and it's and it's great. It's it's it, it's fine. I, it's good that every relationship has somebody that pulls us, right? Because if if we were both savers, then we'd live in this the, this house that would just be a, a, a train wreck, and our kids would have the minimal. There'd be holes in their jeans everywhere. Their shoes would be flopping all over the place. Cause, so it's good that we have like everybody in a relationship where there's a hoarder. A, sorry, excuse me, a saver and a spender. <laughs> understands the value of having somebody else unlike me in this relationship. I like that my wife is more of a saver than me, right? She keeps us in line. I keep us buying triple ply toilet paper because I don't wanna buy the single ply, okay? I'm willing to spend a little excess in that area so that there's not sandpaper. Anyways, I gotta move on. But we understand, we love the fact that we help each other out in this way. We're spenders and savers in this way. But both, listen, this is important. This is what Jesus, I think, is so clear on. Both are consumed by something that is impossible to see in the mirror. Both fall into the danger of finding themselves in a spot where they experience a certain level of something that we call greed. Now, here's the thing about greed. Greed is impossible to see in the mirror. What I mean by that is nobody ever, 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 ever thinks that they are greedy. I've never, some, I've never had somebody come up to me after service and be like, hey, would you pray for me? I'm just, I'm greedy." I'm just so greedy. Nobody ever says that, ever. What they say is I'm greedy. I'm careful. I'm really careful with my finances, right? Or I'm very generous. Um, meaning I, I'm if they're, a, if they're a saver, I'm very careful with what we do. If I'm a spender, I'm, I'm a generous person. I like to do things for a lot of people, especially me. I like to do things for me as well. I'm a spender in that way. But nobody ever sees greed in the mirror. And here's the we, way we did a series, a financial series, like, a, a I don't know, a couple years ago. And we defined greed in this way. The assumption that it's all for my consumption. Greed, because no, let, me, let me demystify greed. Because greed sounds like, uh, sounds like uh, uh, what's the, uh, oh, my gosh, I'm blanking on I don't have it in my notes. I should. The green guy. The Grinch. Thank you. We think of the Grinch. And we're like, wow, I'm not the Grinch. I mean, come on. I bought my kids a couple of Christmas gifts. You know, I'm not like stealing them, stealing from them from Grandpa and Grandma when they're bringing the gifts over. I'm not the Grinch. We classify greed as that, but that's not greed. I mean, that is an extreme form of greed. But don't don't overclassify something to make it like so extreme that we would never see it in ourselves. Greed is essentially this: the assumption that it's all for my consumption. That whatever I get my hands on, that's enough. That's for me. That I I am able to and entitled to and and. Um, have the American right to be able to live up to 100% of my income, sometimes 110%, but then I get slapped on the hand from you know whatever credit card bills that come through, and then I kind of back it off a little bit. But everything that I get my hands on is for me. That's essentially greed. Now, here's the thing. You can be poor and be greedy. You can be poor and not have a great income and still be greedy. It's still just assuming that everything that I get my hands on, even though there's not much of it, is all for me. And you can be rich and be greedy. We know that. We feel like that. We've, we've seen that. We are related to people who it becomes obvious. And it, it's either my consumption now, which makes me a consumer, or my consumption later, which makes me a hoarder. Now, let's bring this down to a little personal level real quick, okay? I was thinking about this this week as I'm trying to get my thoughts together and trying to talk about this. And I thought about something. I I said, I wonder sometimes what I would have if I didn't know what everybody else had. I wonder what I would have if I didn't know what everybody else had. I wonder what I would want if I didn't know what everybody else had. How much of what I want and what I have is shaped by all the stuff that you have? That I see your stuff on Facebook and Instagram and all this, and I think, oh, those are cool. That's cool. Those are, that looks awesome. I would love to drive those. I would love to drive that. I wonder what my savings account would look like if I didn't know how all of you spent your money. I wonder if my giving statements from the organizations that I feel like are doing good things in the world and I want to support them financially, I wonder what those would look, if those would look any differently if I didn't know how much you were spending on you. That's like the, ugh, that one, that one hurts a little bit more. The problem is this. I know too much about what others have that I don't have. And this makes me dangerously discontent. Sometimes I don't even know what I want. This week, honest to God, I'm writing this message. I get an email from eBay on Friday that says, congratulations. You've just earned a 20% off coupon for $25 or more. It expires in three days, expires on the 30th. I'm, I'm just bringing in details to show you. This is legit. I get this email and I think to myself, that's amazing. 20, 20% off? I, should, I don't even know what I want. I got on eBay and I just started being like, let's just explore things that I could buy for 20% off. I don't even have anything. I, it was like, what can we help you find? And I'm like, it's just is a blinking thing. I'm like, I don't know. And I found myself going, cons- I'm, I'm talking about consumerism, and then I get sidetracked for a half an hour trying to find things that I might want to buy simply because I have a really small discount coming through eBay. That is sick, you guys. You guys have a broken pastor. That's how this is. This is the, this is the whole thing. I come before you not as one shaking your, his finger at you but saying if you're going to throw rocks could you please just hit down here to save the face my it's it's precious my wife you anyway, anyways i'm just joking about that but listen if your chief concern is where does this put me financially and if that is the fil- if 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 a lot of times my filter is based on the comparison of the things around me and then I look through the lens of life, and in that lens, the most, one of the most important things, if not the most important thing is, where does this put me financially? Then perhaps, 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 I have a problem, and you have a problem with greed. If you've ever thought, I really want to, um, I, I, I don't, well, let's see. I don't want this promotion because of what it's going to do to my family time and my free time. I really don't want to move, but the money's good. I don't want to do this, but... Boy, that sounds like a lot of money. I wonder how we would spend all of that money if we moved there. You get in your, you know, your, your wife or spouse or girlfriend or whatever together, or, your, or husband or whatever, and you're like, boy, if we did this, man, huh, we'd have so much money we wouldn't even know what to do with it. You'd figure it out real fast, by the way. Just side note, we're all, we all figure that out real fast how to do that. But in that moment, you begin to filter it as that is the most important decision. Should it be a factor in your decision? Yes, absolutely, right? Okay, fine. Right. But we, we we don't understand we're so blinded to the fact that we come we're so we've been so formed by a consumeristic culture, it becomes the grid by which this takes place. And my job as your pastor, for those of you who called East Lake Home or whatever, is to make sure you get this financially thing this financial thing right. And again, I hope it comes through so clearly because it did for Jesus and I want it to do for, for this place as well. Not because I want something from you, because I want something for you. Last week, we did this announcement at the end of service. Um, our, we have a, a system called Planning Center. that's like our back end like software management, right? So anytime you register for a 101 or anytime you mark a card, it gets on there. Anytime you give, it goes through this... Planes and it's all this software stuff that it's way too smart for me. They just came out with this texting text-to-give option because they're like, hey, you know, you're reaching a younger generation who. doesn't bring their checkbook to church, but they do bring their phone. So why not do this text to give thing? And so, and I, so I, this came out a, c- a couple weeks ago and the staff at the staff was like, you should talk about it on Sunday. And so last week I made this announcement and you guys, I'm cringing up here as I'm talking about it. I hope you saw the pain in my face. I hate talking about money. I know that the perception of people who are coming in are like skeptical about church. Money's at the top of their list. The church wants me for my money. And so I'm, I'm like so, so anti that. I would have rather come up to you last week and told you we're switching to decaf only. It's it's cheaper, and we have to do this, you guys. I would rather have said that than, "Hey guys, you can text to give now." You know what I mean? Is it a great option? Sure, whatever, it doesn't matter. But I feel so I feel so like uh, like uh, sensitive about this area, and yet, and yet, and yet, I would be remiss to to look over the fact. That I can, especially in a consumer driven culture where greed can so much attack you, where you can fall into the ditch, not because you're broke, but because you have more money to know than you know what to do with. And you're using it to, to, uh, to, to be a hoarder, to be a consumer. And it's affecting your relationship with your wife and your kids and your family consistently feels like they're competing against your stuff. And all of a sudden, they're like, "I, I, I just—it's so hard." I grew up in a household. I don't—I don't want your kids to say this, if you—you you know, ten years down the road. I grew up in a household where it was very clear to me what was a priority. That I was kind of on par with stuff, and it might not be stuff. And for, for those of you for a, a younger generation, we realize that our like millennials are not as much into stuff as they are into experiences and travel. And I want to do things. I I want to spend money on me, and I want to go places and do things. And if and if having kids keeps me from that, and I want to delay that as much as I can, because this is about me. And so then then we start using this language like, oh, I would love to be able to go and do those things, but I got these darn kids with me now, right? And these kids like grow up going, I'm sorry that I'm such a burden on you. They don't know that at two and four, but as soon as it gets going, they, they, they do it. At some, at some age, they realize like, oh, I'm so sorry that I'm, I'm keeping you from experiencing life the way that you wanted to do it. Or I'm keeping you from owning those jet skis that you wanted to buy. I'm so sorry. I'll hurry up and get to be 18 and then get out of your way. You know what I mean? You don't want you don't want that as a parent. I know you don't, right? When, when you talk about it in that way, you're like, oh yeah, I don't want that. But then you, you live like that sometimes though. So Jesus says, and, and listen, I'm responsible. I feel a responsibility to make sure that you see this and understand this. So, the key is a habit that you can develop to go against this. Anytime that there's something that I'm doing that I'm not, maybe I'm not even aware of, then what I need to do is create a better habit that flips this around for me. So, um, Jesus would talk, uh, I think, a, a breakdown of his, like, an overview of his teaching about money. Breaks it down to this is how most people live, okay? Most people live as if they are mastered by their money, and it looks like this. I live off of what I have. If I have anything left over, I save. And if there's anything left over after that, then I give. When I start off, when I'm coming out of college and I'm, when I'm not making much, I'm pretty much living on everything that I can. And usually it's like I'm living at 110, 110% of my income and then the credit cards come due and then I'm like, ah, and then I get back on track and then I use my tax return to pay off those and I get back in the even and then I find myself slipping. And then finally I get to a job career-wise where, um, the, the, where I'm being provided for and, and, and I've been down the road of debt and I don't like paying late fees. And so now I'm kind of making some smart decisions when it comes to finances. And now my, my uh, business or my, uh, my employer is offering me some sort of a match or a 401k or four hundred three b or something like that. I'm going to start saving you. They're like, we'll pay some if you'll match it. And you're like, okay, that sounds like free money. I'm in for that. So I'm going to save if there's anything left over from this. I mean, the first thing I cut if I don't, but I'm gonna save and then whatever's left over, then I give, or then I, then I save. And then if there's anything left over after that, that's when I give. That's a, that's a common mentality. This is a majority mentality, by the way, outside the church and inside the church, uh, for the record. But I'm gonna give, and here's the asterisk when it comes to give. I'm gonna give when you make it emotionally imperative that I do so, Brent. It is on you, Brent, to make sure, or whoever, whatever nonprofit organization exists in the community that's doing good work. To make me feel like I need to do this. So if a hurricane comes along, or some, you know, some some flooding takes place, and we feel obligated to, I, now I'm going to give <coughs> because the video has gotten like this emotional trigger on me that that is good. Or Brent, if you could highlight um, some of the organizations doing good things here, right? The refugee situation with World Relief, or uh, the teen moms with the, this uh, Young Lives thing that we're going through, or um, you know, whatever. If, if you can tug on my heartstrings enough, then I'll I'll reach in and give something in that way. Or I'll tip in this way, I'll, I'll do that. So let me break this down for you on, on how this works out into who this is for. <clears throat> number one is me. Number two is me. And number three is everybody else, asterisk, when I'm feeling generous. When you live as if it's live, save, give, I'm living for me, and then I'm in a sense I'm living for future me, which is good, but still future me. And then everybody else comes in <clears throat> at a... At a excuse me, as third, when I'm feeling generous, and by the way, when I do give, I want to make sure that everybody sees, including God, hey, oh, look at me giving, you know, stop at those blue bins, and you're just like, I'm just going to pause here, there's a big lineup, but I'm, I'm, I'm making sure everybody can see. I'm dropping a giving envelope that is licked and sealed, everybody. This is not an empty one. I'm dropping it in, right? Or when we give online to some GoFundMe account and they're like, do you want to give anonymously? like, no. I want to make sure people know who I am, know how much I'm giving, right? We do that because I do that. I don't know. Anyways, maybe you don't. Getting your pastor's broken. Me, me, and everybody else, Jesus offers a different way. Uh, if you don't want to be mastered by your money, then you can choose then to master your money, which then flips this script around. It basically takes it from top to bottom and reverses the order. It says, you're going to live in this way. You're going to give first. You're going to save second. You're going to live on the rest. I'm going to choose to give. Now, again, this is not a plea to give here. I'm just saying you need to be generous. One of the, the, the best way to break the power of greed is to choose to live generously, to pre-decide, I am already going to give this away. I don't even know where I'm going to give it. But we are going to be, I'm going to be the type of person who has money set aside, earmarked for other people. Then I'm going to earmark some from future me, because that's important. And then I'm going to blow the rest. And I promise you, if you do this, I don't care how much you have at the end where you blow the rest and live on yourself. You will fight against the power of greed. It will be the best thing. It will be better than any decision that you choose to mentally make of "I'm not going to be greedy. I'm not going to be greedy. I'm not going to be greedy." Listen, when you live in this way, you follow up your words with actual actions that actually fight against greed in your life. I'm going to choose to be a generous person. Now you get to decide what percentage that that looks like for you. You're going to say, "I'm going to choose I'm, g- generosity for me." Looks like. of my income, 3% of my income, 2%, 1% of my income, something like that. It's going to be a percentage base so that when I continue to make money, that my gifts don't go up, that my gift doesn't stay static, but I'm going to be generous somewhere, somehow to somebody else. I'm going to save and I'm going to live. This is how you make sure you're not mastered by your money. Now, listen, think about this when it comes to your kids. I don't want my kids to be owned by their money. I want them to own money. I don't want to pay for them until they're 40. I want them to own money, but I don't want them to be owned by their money. I don't want my future son-in-law or daughter-in-law to feel like they're competing against their stuff from my kids. I have an opportunity. They're in the formative years um, where the things that I do, the way that I live, and the questions that I ask are going to shape them. So Kylie and I are choosing to model ourselves in this way, but we're also choosing by the questions that we ask. We've talked about this before. The questions you ask reveal the values that you hold. If you're constantly asked at work, how's this going, how's this going, how's this going? And week after week after week, even if it doesn't show up on your job description, you realize quickly that that's what's most important in your line of work. I better take care of this because I know on Monday morning they're going to ask me how to go last week, how to go last week. When it comes to your kids getting money, I'm trying to train myself When my daughter gets uh, money, I I will ask her not, what are you going to spend it on? But I'm trying to ask her this. How are you going to be generous? What are you going to start doing? Who do you want to give some of that away to? What do you want to do for other people with a little bit of that? Not all of it. I'm just saying with something. That's going to be my first question to her. Who do you think you could bless with some of that? How much of that are you going to save? Not are you going to save. That creates a yes or no question. How much of this are you going to save in some sort of a future piggy bank or future? You want to go to Disneyland someday? You want to do something fun? What if you put some of it away now? And then finally, what do you want to go do with the rest? Where do you want to go? What do you want to spend it on? What do you want to do? My daughter's 10. This is an age where it's really important for me to get this right. When she was younger, it didn't matter, right? I have a five-year-old son, Grayson. I don't do this with Grayson, okay? One of the reasons is he loses his money all the time, so I'd be like, It's not about where you're going to spend it. He just, like, I find dollar bills all over the place. I can tell it's his because it's all grumpled up and, you know, just torn in half and all this kind of thing. So I don't have to to ask him where he's going to spend his money or do anything. I just, I'll find it later. And then I use that exact same dollar bill to encourage him to go clean up your room. I'll give you this dollar bill. And he'll be like, he's thinking he's got all this money somewhere. And I just keep finding it. And then I just keep making him do other projects and making it go over. So anyways, it's a broken system, but don't tell him. He's not catching on. So I'm getting a bunch out of it right now. But... With London, it's it's different. I've got to be able to ask these different questions. Why? Because I don't want my children to be owned by what they own. I want them to experience independence from the belief that life equals stuff. I want to communicate to them the reality that no matter how much you get, no matter if you acquire that thing that you want, you will always live with a sense of being discontent. If you allow greed to have any place in your life, No matter what shows up on the assets line of your life, there will always be a growing sense of discontentment, discontentment, discontentment. Why? Because consumerism, consumption is an appetite. And appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. You never walked away from a meal and said, I'll never eat again in my life. You may say that, and then four hours later, you're looking through the fridge, aren't you? Because that's how appetites work, that's how consumerism works. I'll never need to buy anything else as long as I get that. Eh. Two weeks later, something else shows up. That's shinier. That's newer. The screen's bigger. It goes all the way to the edges now. You just have to look at it and it unlocks everything. Oh God! I gotta have that. Good grief. Pushing a whole button. Who wants to be pushing a button all day? Oh my goodness. Listen. I want to have. I want them to have stuff, and I, I don't want their stuff to have them. I want you to have things, but I don't want your stuff to have you. Jesus doesn't either. He goes on later in that passage, Matthew chapter 6, verse 31. Jump down a few verses. He says this So do not worry, saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? Or what will we wear? Right? Um, Eating for them, they didn't have refrigerators. Eating was a very concern. How much? Where are we going to get our next meal at? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? legitimate concern. It feels super simplistic here. Think of the things that you think about that keep you up at night when it comes to finances. Are we going to have enough to retire someday? Are we going to have enough to be able to send our kids to college or pay at least part of it? Or um, nah, he's, he's not going to make college. We're safe on that one. So we're going to move on to this one. Uh, are we going to be able to own our own house someday? Right? Are we going to be able to uh, all these things that keep you up at night? That's, that's what he's talking about. And he's like, you know what? Don't worry about those things for the pagans run after all of these things. The pagans, which for them was just somebody who lived as if there were many gods and was not really drawn towards any of them. We live with a a sense of that the God system exists, but what real is, is something different. It's it's a, a sense, he's saying, when you think about those things, when you dwell on those things, when those things dominate your time, you're living as if God doesn't exist. Or, and he goes on, and your heavenly father knows that you need them. Or you don't really think that God knows about it or cares about it. Either he doesn't exist He doesn't know about it, or he knows about it, but doesn't care about it. When you live with that sense, that's essentially what you're saying. But, and then here's his conclusion, but seek first. But seek first. In other words, reorder, rearrange it. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. What do you mean his kingdom? Jesus, throughout his time, teaching his disciples, would come to them and say, Listen, people will know you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Another time he says, um, You've heard it said, or you've seen it before, where people who get an authority lord that authority and the, lord their power over themselves, or lord their possessions over themselves, but not so with you. Anytime you get a chance to have influence in any different area, you get on your knees and you wash other people's feet. Over and over and over again, what we see is Jesus promoting this others first sort of mentality. You start with others. You start with others. You start with selflessness. That is the way to the kingdom. Selflessness is the way to the kingdom. And it shows here, and it's the prime example here is in the financial realm. But he says, this is just a true, a truism for life in general. The way to the kingdom is through selflessness. Now think of all the broken things in our world. Think of all the broken systems politically, economically socially? Look at this. And, and ask yourself the question, or, 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 or dwell on this, would selflessness, would selfless living have an impact on this? If people live selflessly in this area, would it have an impact? Would things be different? And you know the answer to that question is yes. Selflessness would solve everything. It would solve everything. Selflessness. And Jesus would say, welcome to the kingdom of God and others first God, who created the world, who loved the world so much, he gave his only begotten son, who others first, his entire modus operandi, this is how he, this is how he does things, and he invites us to do that into our personal finances, to give, to save, to live, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness And the conclusion is, and all of these things will be given to you as well. Don't you know? God loves you enough. He knows you need him. He knows. He knows what it's going to take to make this work. And all of these things will be given to you as well. This is his promise to say, you think that the math won't add up, that you won't have enough to live on if you choose to do the give, save, and then live on it. There's not going to be enough in the account. There's going to be too many bills and not enough live, right? Right? And what he's saying is this, uh, that's just so not true. You live your life so many times thinking, I'm going to outlive what I have, when the opposite is so often true with us. Do you know when most people get this? Most people get this and really truly understand this when the bottom files out financially for them. In my experience when somebody comes to me and says i lost my job uh, things are incredibly tight i'm trying to work two jobs cuz he's hurt there's something is, is going on he can't work she can't work things are things are just difficult and we're just trying to piece this thing together and i'm not coming here to ask for a handout i'm just telling you would you pray for us i'm, I'm just I'm, I'm i'm really struggling with some of this and they choose to say in that in that moment but you know what we 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 still, we want to be faithful with our finances. We want to be faithful with this. We're going to choose to be smart with this. We are on the road back towards recovery financially, and we're going to start by being generous. We're going to start by saving, tucking things away for future me, and then we're going to live on the rest, and we're committed to living this way. Even though we could live on 100% of our finances, we're going to choose to live on less, even though we're on the road out of this. And You talk to these people later on. And they may not live on the street that they wanted to live on or drive the thing that they wanted to drive on or have as much in their 401k as they wanted to. But you talk to them, and you you hear them talk about it, and they say, I'm more content than I've ever been in life, and I cannot put a price tag on this. Because here's what nobody in the room is thinking. This is the perfect time to talk about this. I just got an endowment from the Queen of England. I have more money than I know what to do with. This is a perfect time to talk about this topic, Brent. Nobody ever says that. This is obviously usually the worst time to talk about this. Ah, if you would know, the bill's stacking up. If you would know this, I cannot be generous in this way. At this time, in this season, it doesn't make sense for me. I get it. I'm just telling you, that's a pretty great sign. You might be owned by your stuff. And not have your stuff be owned by you. This is the guardrail that guards us against greed and everything that comes along with it. This, this is the guardrail that keeps us from being consumed by consumerism or consumed with hoarding, which then becomes the ditch, which influences our life. And the danger of this one, again, is you just don't see it in the mirror. Years later, through counseling, years later through broken relationships, your husband, your wife, your kids find themselves saying, I just found myself competing with their stuff. And our relationship was secondary to advancement in his employment or her employment or a bigger house or a bigger car or a bigger something. And I always felt like I was kind of in the way. And it's fine. Still love him. Still love her. Still my mom. Still my dad. But there was a window. It could have been so much different. So much different. Now, if you're single, this is great because you only have to convince the person in the mirror what you're going to do with this. Now, that person's greedy. Don't forget about that. But you get a chance to be in control of this. And if you're married or or in a relationship or uh, partnership or whatever, you're looking at this going, okay, now I got to talk to them about it. We got to make this decision together. This is going to be a guardrail for us of what this is going to look like. But you can look at them in the eye and be like, I don't want you to ever feel like you're having to compete with stuff in this relationship. We are going to have a better handle on this. We are going to get this right. In a world and in a culture that does not get this right way more often than they do, we are going to be different. We are going to be different. Forty years from now, you are not going to feel like you ever had to compete with, uh, with stuff when it comes to my allegiance or my love for you. Things were things. We owned things, and they never owned us. Because we chose to give, to save, and then to live. A better way. Not because I want something from you. I just want it for you. Let's pray. Father, we uh, we are so grateful for this. I mean, it, it feels weird to say grateful because we, we, we know it's a difficult uh, it's a difficult topic. It's, it's a difficult thing to kind of put our, our hands around it and really get on board with. This is one of those talks that usually we just kind of sit with for a while and, and maybe don't take action on it or, or think, ah, that's, that's good for someday. That, that when I get that raise or when I get this or when things smooth out, when the waters get a little bit s- smoother, then I'll be able to make some of the decisions that I, I really want to make in this area. And I pray that you would help us to see that there's never, ever going to be a perfect time to be able to make this right in our life. Give us the wisdom to see that so clearly. Give us the wisdom to be able to see somehow the areas in our life where our stuff has owned us and then give us the courage to do something about it, to live differently, to live in a way that probably outsiders would be like, why, why in the world, why would you feel guilty about that? Why would you do this? Why? And it doesn't make any sense to them. But for us, it becomes a personal guardrail, it becomes a matter of conscience because we so desperately want to be the type of person who does not live as if you do not exist or do not care or will not provide, but instead puts our trust in you. Help us. Figure that out for us in your name. Amen.